Mark chapter 10, and I'm going to read for us from verse 32 through to verse 52. Let's hear God's word. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who were followed were afraid, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to, over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized, the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or... At my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great, their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be Slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is God's word. Please be seated. Amen. There are many different theories about leadership. Uh, Steve Jobs, uh, renowned as one of the most effective leaders in bus uh, business world recently, one time said that there's a difference between management and leadership. According to Steve Jobs, um, as uh, John Maxwell cited to him in one of his uh, books on leadership, uh, Steve Jobs said that management is about getting people to do what they do not want to do, whereas leadership is about inspiring people to do that which they can never believe that they could do. It's an interesting distinction. Of course, leadership is a challenge, isn't it? And how do you relate what people want with all their different preferences and uh, opinions and get people to move in a, in a single direction, lead them? 
Leadership is right at the heart of this passage, as I hope to show you. And it's a big challenge, isn't it, how to do it? It always has been a challenge, of course. Um, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, the uh, World War II general and later president of America, uh, rather a little bit more cynically than Steve Jobs, one time said, leadership is the art of getting people to do what you want in such a way that they think that it's what they want. But how do we lead people in a way that isn't? Not that I'm saying he was manipulative or that he wasn't, but I, it, it, how do we do that? And, and, and how do we do it with all the different kinds of opinions? It's always been a challenge. The, the gallant French president, Charles de Gaulle, one time complained at how hard it was to lead the French people, saying, how on earth can anyone govern a nation with 246 different kinds of cheese? Well, he had a point. All these different views, preferences, tastes. But if it has always been a hard challenge, it is especially a hard challenge right now. Many different reasons for that, but I suppose um, uh, we all resonate with that reality of all the divisiveness and complexity of our world. Uh, One Uh, theory, uh, this actually comes from MIT, the theory is that we are going through what they would call the fourth industrial revolution. In other words, a technological change that is massive. One statistic that bears support for that, and uh, hence because of the the technological change, all the difficulties of leadership, one uh, uh, statistic that supports that view is that in 1995 there were 44 million users of the internet, whereas in 2015 there were 6 billion. And of course, you know, it's now 2023, so who knows? And all the varieties of shifts of technology that, that fuel complexity, that then fuel confrontation and division and political fragmentation and ecclesial church uh, disagreements and, and, and Christian um, uh, arguments as in, in the world as well as in, the, in Christian circles. There's, there's a massive, massive challenge of leadership today. Whether at family level or government level or business level or even leading our own lives so that we don't get distracted by all that technological input we all have in our information age. How do we do it? Well, here in this passage, Jesus wants to inspire us with his leadership. Mark is telling us this story, he's putting it together around two questions or one question that Jesus asked two times to inspire us to want Jesus' leadership. The first question you'll find in the first part of the passage, it's uh, it's, uh, the first time you ask the question, it's in verse 36. He says to them, what do you want me to do for you? And in its context, this question is intended by Mark, and as Jesus asks it, to inspire us to want Jesus' servant leadership. Let me show you how that works. So Jesus asks them, verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? And what do they say? Uh, verse 37, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Oh, what an astonishingly ambitious thing to ask. But not only is it astonishing whenever you would heard it, it's a remarkable in context. Uh, Jesus, right before this, has just actually for the third time in Mark's gospel predicted his coming uh, crucifixion and resurrection. But listen to how he does it. Verse 33. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is leading the way on the Jericho Road all the way up to Jerusalem. 
He's forging ahead with the disciples following him as disciples in the ancient world literally followed their rabbi. They're following him as he leads, as he goes up to Jerusalem. See, he says, we're going up to Jerusalem. And what's going to happen there? Well, the Son of Man will be what? Delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will betray him, uh, condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And after three days he'll rise. James and John, they come up to him and say, uh, Jesus, we want some glory. Like, what is not computing? I, I'm going to die. I'm going to be spat on. I'm going to be flogged. Okay, guys. Jesus, can we have some glory, please? In fact, when they come up to him, first of all, they're really asking for a sort of spiritual blank check, verse 35. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Wow, what a thing to say. Many people have been bamboozled and flummoxed as to how on earth it is that James and John could have been so obtuse to ask for glory when Jesus has just predicted his suffering. Perhaps they were planning the succession. Jesus was about to die, and so there's a, there's a room, there's a space at the top of the table. And so maybe James and John are thinking they could be the new sort of dynamic duo at the, at the, at the head of the table. Perhaps they're planning the succession. Or perhaps they're planning a kind of palace coup. You see, some people would say that in the previous section that we looked at last week, Peter is implicitly criticized by Jesus and now, in the Gospels, you normally have Pete and James and John together as a sort of leadership in a circle. But now there's just James and John. And Peter isn't there. Well, he's been criticized. So now they, they come up to Jesus. And in a sense, what they're saying is, can we reorder the org chart so that James and John are at the top and Peter is somewhere else? Or it could be that James and John were this this kind of people. We have different temperaments and different personalities. And Jesus has already uh, described James and John as sons of thunder. And here they are, thunderously competitive. They want glory. Indeed, in Matthew's version of the story, uh, Jesus describes how that there will be a coming glory. Well, perhaps James and John are just the kind of people who latch on to competitive glory. That's what they want. Or perhaps, as Chrysostom, uh, the, the ancient uh, Christian leader, remarked, we shouldn't be too harsh on James and John, for after all, the full mystery of the theology of the cross had not yet been revealed, which is certainly true. But on the other hand, Jesus has just preached that he's going to suffer. And, and this isn't just, he didn't just say it, this is his message, the burden of his heart that he preached. And as I said a moment ago, this is actually the third time he preached it. So it's not as if, Jesus' coming suffering was hidden from them in that sense. They knew about it. He just preached about it. And yet they come up and say, well, forget all that suffering. I want glory. Now, I think the most likely interpretation, in my view at least, is that James and John are merely reflective of a far too common, very human tendency. We really want glory. And I think that is, um, 
uh, affirmed by the way the interaction uh, carries on. Uh, Jesus said to them, verse 38, you do not know what you're asking. Well, they certainly didn't. Why not? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized of the baptism in which I am baptized? In other words, the cup, of course, is the cup in the Old Testament. Uh, when you give someone the cup, most of all, it didn't always, sometimes it was a cup of blessing, but usually, as it is here, the, give it, the, drinking the cup means drinking the cup of God's wrath. And his and judgment and suffering and pain, and that's how, of course, Jesus is using it here. Can you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized with? In other words, you 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 die in your baptism. You're you're covered over with the, the waters of of God's judgment, and yet through the power of Jesus, you rise to new life. Well, Jesus here is going to be baptized in the sense he's going to die. So James and God, uh, John, I, I'm going to drink the cup of God's wrath and I'm going to be baptized to death can you do that and what do they say oh sure we are able no problem sign me right up and Jesus says the cup that I drink you will drink and the baptism which I am baptized you will be baptized I I think almost certainly Jesus is prophesying then what will happen to James and John James of course was martyred And John spent his last years in lonely exile. But he says, verse 40, to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. It is for those whom it has been prepared. Again, lots of people over the years have tried to figure out what Jesus means by that. In my view, almost certainly what he's talking about is the cross. The cross looms so large over all this narrative. When Jesus talks about the one who's going to be on his right having just talked about the cup of wrath and the baptism of death, the one who will be on his right and the one who will be on his left, who is that? Those are those who will be crucified with him. Well, that's been long prepared, James and John. And you don't want that anyway. It's such a human tendency to try to trade the suffering of the cross for the celebrity Christianity. It's not as if they were the last people to attempt to do that. And then typically, of course, once that's going on, it creates division. Verse 41, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Of course, anytime there's unbridled, selfish ambition, everyone else gets their nose put out of joy. What about me? What about me? What about this? And so then Jesus, all this question, the first time he asks the question, is intended by Mark and by Jesus' brilliant leadership to set up his servant leadership. So he calls them all together. Look, disciples, I'm now going to teach you. Verse 42. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. In other words, there's a certain kind of leadership that is symptomatic of the secular, pagan, non-Christian, non uh, worshipping God kind of world. They lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. That's how it is done. Manipulation, power, that's what happens out there, Jesus says. But it shall not be so, verse 43, it shall not be so among you. You, my disciples, are to do it differently. 
not like the world, quite a contrast. In fact, he says, well, note, he's not saying there aren't great ones, nor those will be first. He says, whoever will be great, so there, is, there are those who will be great, whoever will be great, though not like the world, among you must be what? Your servant. Jesus' servant leadership. And whoever will be first among you must be what? Slave of all. You've got it completely wrong, James and John. You don't understand the first thing about Christian leadership. Jesus' leadership is first servant leadership. Why? Verse 45, he models it himself. He wants to inspire it among us by how he himself lives and dies. Verse 45, the very faint, if you're going to learn one verse from the whole Mark's gospel, learn this one. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's a great verse. I remember a church I served at in, uh, in Cambridge. Uh, we made sure everyone uh, learned that particular verse. A friend of mine, uh, not on staff, but a very good friend of mine, made sure we did it. And it was quite right. It is the key verse of uh, Mark, uh, Mark's gospel. But here in context, what Jesus is saying is, look, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. In other words, the Son of Man, which they would have known, came from the prophecy of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man is the authoritative, divine, and yet human figure that is all fulfilled in who Jesus is, with all his power and authority, the Son of Man. And yet, the Son of Man is rightly also, according to Jesus, and he uses the language from Uh, the prophecy of the book of Isaiah, and over and over again here, particularly Isaiah chapter 53, the Son of Man is also the suffering servant. Those two themes, the authority of the rule of the Son of Man and the suffering servant in Isaiah, meet in me, Jesus says. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, a redemption for many. That word ransom is used simply in the Old Testament. Those of you who uh, uh, historians will know there's been a lot of debate down through history about the word ransom. But in the Old Testament use, which this, of course, reflects, it's simply a word for redemption or rescue. So what he's saying here is my kind of leadership is servant leadership, and I want to inspire you to follow me uh, as, a, as a servant leader, Jesus' servant leadership. Now, the tricky thing about this, of course, is that when we talk in Christian circles, as we do quite often about servant leadership, it can seem to be deeply unrealistic. We live in a survival of the fittest world, is the counter-argument, and surely uh, nice guys finish last, and uh, it doesn't really work. I, uh, some, uh, a couple years or so ago, um, I um, took an online course in leadership uh, run by MIT, the famous American university. Uh, it, and uh, don't worry, they accepted pretty much everyone. They even accepted me. But uh, it was, I learned a lot. And in this MIT online leadership course, uh, they had um, a lot of aspects to it that I found fascinating. But the most interesting part of it for me was they had a paradigm that they had proposed as their leadership, and then they'd gone and tested it in the field. They'd gone and figured out whether it worked, and what they discovered was they needed to add to that paradigm. There are four parts of it in this little paradigm, but they decided to add into it one fifth part right in the middle, and they symbolized that fifth part with a plus sign, 
which to me looked remarkably like a cross, though I didn't say it to whoever was teaching me, but it did. And the plus sign they put there to counteract all the toxic leadership they discovered with what they called credibility. And by credibility, what they said was, you need to do what you say, have integrity, and get this, MIT, check your ego at the door. And I did all this course and thought, my goodness, with all the celebrity Christianity nonsense we've been through as an evangelical movement the last 10 years, we should send them to MIT to learn servant leadership. Like, yeah, do what you're going to say, check your ego at the door. MIT says that's the way to do it. Amazing, isn't it? And if you want to, you know, the, uh, I recommend this book to people all the time, but the classic book on leadership, I think, is a book by J. Oswald Sander, the great missionary leader from yesterday. It's been republished many times in many different versions, but the book is Spiritual Leadership. And J. Oswald Sanders calls this the master's master principle, namely service. But Jesus asked that same question another time because there's another aspect to his leadership. And you'll find the second time that he asks it, a little bit later in the passage, verse 51. Exactly the same words in the English and in the Greek. Same words, verse 51. Jesus said to him, that of course is blind Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Mark is deliberately setting us up and Jesus and the way he's leading, as he goes up from Jericho to Jerusalem and now he's As he asks, he's just in the outskirts of Jericho at the bottom of this long climb up to Jerusalem as he leads the way to the cross. He's deliberately asking the same question again, which gets a very different answer. And it's quite a remarkable scenario. So here's what's going on. You've got Bartimaeus that Mark tells us uh, means uh, the son of Timaeus. Uh, Bartimaeus just means son of Timaeus. And Mark, because he's primarily, or a lot of what he's writing to are people who wouldn't have known that Bartimaeus uh, was the son of Timaeus. He probably has Gentiles, uh, if not uh, at least massively in his mind, so certainly not exclusively. So he translates it for us, son of Timaeus. But some scholars think, get this, Timaeus linguistically means blind one. So it could be that what Mark is saying here is, here is a blind beggar, the son of a blind man. A blind man, son of blind man. It's an endemic generational problem. And he's sitting outside Jericho, hears that Jesus is coming. What does he do? He cries out, Jesus, son of David. Amazingly, once again, same as in Mark chapter 8, here's a blind man who sees He gets it. Jesus of Nazareth is who? Son of David. That is a royal claim. He's going up to Jerusalem. He calls him son of David. Jerusalem, of course, was the center of power. He's going up to Washington, D.C., and he acclaims him president, son of David. You're the ruler. A revolutionary claim it would have been. And they try to hush him up. They hush him up uh, because in Jewish uh, ideas, son of David and Christ and Messiah are basically equivalent titles. And they've been told earlier in Mark's gospel not to use the title Christ yet because it was a revolutionary claim. And there they are getting closer to Jerusalem. And here's this blind beggar saying that he's, he's the ruler. He's the son of David. It's a dangerous thing to say. But not only do they try to hush him up because it's dangerous, they hush him up because if Jesus is indeed going to rule from Jerusalem, 
the last thing he needs in their twisted idea of leadership is a blind beggar in his entourage. That's not what you see from the powerful people. They have always impressive people around them so that they look yet more impressive. Stay away, blind beggars. This is Jesus. But Jesus has a different model of leadership. Jesus stopped and said, call him. His leadership is not only serving, it is saving leadership. They call the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, get this, look at the vigor with which he moves. He throws off his cloak, the outer cloak at the time. He springs up and he comes to Jesus. There's a blind guy pushing everyone else out of the way. I'm going to get there. If Jesus is calling you this morning, do not delay. Be like the blind beggar. says, I'm going to Jesus now. Throw off your cloak. Run to him. He threw off his cloak. He sprang up. Came to Jesus. Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? How that question must have echoed in the minds of James and John. James and John, they, they come to Jesus. We want you to do whatever we ask. Jesus says, what, what do you want me to do for you? Oh, Jesus, we want glory. A little bit later, he's walking up the road. Here comes blind Bartimaeus. Jesus, with one eye on James and John, looks at Bartimaeus and says, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, I want to see. Did you hear that, James and John? That's what he wants. Why? Because I'm a serving leader and I'm a saving leader. He wants to see. That's it. He's got the right response to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a saving leader. Jesus says to him, your faith has made you well, or literally your faith has healed you. That word healed is uh, um, uh, etymologically the same word for saved in the Bible. And this would be a long discourse that we don't have time for. But when the Bible uses healed and when, it, when the New Testament describes miracles, it always has a bigger picture of salvation, a bigger whole story picture of salvation. So each of these miracles are signs of a bigger healing purpose of the new heaven, the new earth, the salvation, the redemption plan that Jesus, the Son of Man, did not come to be served but to serve, to give his life, to redeem as a ransom for many, including this, yes, blind beggar. I'm going to save you. How? Through faith. I want to see. You're saved. How different from James and John. You see, it's easy, I think, when we hear servant leadership to sort of transmutate that in our minds to merely dutiful leadership. I'm not against duty. Um, um, Duty can be a good thing. It can get you through tough times. I'm going to do this because it's the right thing to do. There's a place for duty. Uh, the longest serving uh, district attorney of New York City ever, at least it was when he retired, was a man called Robert Morgenthau. And uh, Morgenthau served, uh, he, he finally died at the grand old age of 99 and, uh, in 2019. He was the longest serving district attorney in New York City. And actually, out of his service, uh, the well-known TV show Law and Order uh, modeled its, um, car- its sort of heroic district attorney. The DA character Law and Order was modeled after 
uh, Robert Morgenthorpe. He served for a very long time. What is less known about him is actually his life of service was inspired by a moment in 1944 when he was on a ship which was torpedoed and he cried out to the Almighty basically saying, if you save me, I will serve. And he did. Our dutiful service has its place. But here we have something more. Jesus' leadership is not only a serving leadership, it's a saving leadership. And that is inspiring. It inspires us personally. Now our lives have meaning. We're not just trying to survive. Your goal in life is not to get through each day feeling slightly less depressed than you were yesterday. Your goal in life is to be a part of his saving leadership for the whole globe, indeed for the whole universe. This is inspirational. It inspires us personally. It inspires our family life too. The purpose of our families is not just to batten down the hatches to avoid difficulty outside. The purpose of our family life is to be a a location, a zone for discipleship and salvation and evangelism and and all that. It's inspirational. It inspires us congregationally. We're not just here to gather and have a nice time and and sort of shake each other's hands and make sure we wash our hands very vigorously afterwards and that sort of thing. But to embrace and encourage one another is good. To serve in ministries is good, but we are here to be a part of Jesus' saving leadership. And that's inspirational. This isn't just, when you serve here, you're not just volunteering to be a part of like a, like a, 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 a 501c3 doing good works. You're a part of Jesus' saving leadership across time and across history, across the globe. Jesus' serving leadership and his saving leadership too. It it inspires us missionally. We have a a purpose and a a goal and and that is greatness. I've, as you probably guess, I read quite a lot of books. I don't read as many as some people do, but I like reading books. But what you probably don't know about me is I don't always finish them. I've got to the stage of my life where if I find a book boring, I just put it down and move on. And that's probably not a bad thing in some ways, but it does mean I tend to have three or four different books on the go at once. Like I, I feel like I'm bored of that one for a little bit, so I'll go and read something else. And then I, you know, like I've got stacks of books I'm reading all the time. It's, I do not recommend that technique for you. There are much better ones, but that's, you know, I just like to read stuff that I find interesting. And when I stop being interested in it, I read something else, you know. So anyway, but it means that right now, uh, the last week or so, I've had two biographies I'm reading. Uh, One is a biography I've been working through rather slowly by a a man called Walter Isaacson. He's written a lot of great biographies. This one is about Albert Albert Einstein. Einstein, of course, is normally thought to be a great man. And for many good reasons, you know, general relativity and a bright person and, 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 and famous also for his concerns about justice and all this sort of thing. Uh, anyway, I'm reading that biography. I'm also reading a biography of a missionary to the Lisu people. Lisu people are people who we think originated from southwest China and then um, many of them have spread elsewhere in the world to what was called Burma, but is now Myanmar. And uh, there were a hundred or so missionaries who went to the Lisu people 
and saw many of them give their lives to Jesus. They were saved, such that these days a conservative estimate of the number of Christians uh, in the Lisu ethnic group is over a million. In fact, so many have become Christians that none less than the Chinese government has considered uh, declaring that officially the official religion of the Lisu people is Christianity now, having come from animistic uh, background and all, all the rest. Anyway, one of those missionaries um, was a woman known as Jenny Fitzwilliam. Jenny Fitzwilliam, actually in her later life, was for many years a member of this church. Not that I ever knew her. She died before I, I turned up. And the biography is amazing, all that they went through. And then the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Lisu people who are now saved because of the work of her and others like Isabel Kuhn and others. And I, as I read these two biographies at the same time, I ask myself, Einstein, Jenny Fitzwilliam, I ask myself, who is greater? Well, I know what Jesus would say, don't you? His leadership is a serving leadership and a saving leadership. And of course, uh, we haven't really picked it out, but when Jesus says uh, that uh, the greatest will be the slave of all, the servant of all, of course, he's talking about himself, isn't he? Who gave his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the greatest. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we do pray that we would model our leadership, whether our own individual lives or homes or work or studies, on uh, your leadership, a serving leadership and a saving leadership. We pray then, Lord, first of all, that you would save us. We already sung it earlier in the service, but we, uh, in our minds and hearts, say it again, Son of David, have mercy on me. Uh, Lord, uh, you say that you came to give your life as a ransom for many. We pray that you would save many today. And then, Lord, as saved ones, we pray that like blind Martimaeus, we would then follow you along the way, the way that you lead us. Help us, Lord, to reflect your serving and saving leadership, to give our lives to your, uh, to your kingdom and to your glory. We thank you that that's an inspirational way to live. Help us to want to follow your leadership. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.